Turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 11, if you will. Well, I say good morning and uh, trust that you came ready to receive the word. Let's pray one more time and allow our Lord to uh, teach us. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you, Father, just knowing what uh, the Apostle John said, that we have an anointing, and that anointing is from on high by the Holy Spirit. And he said there that he is our teacher, and we need no other teacher. And so, in a sense, I stand here in proxy. I, I stand here, Lord, really not as one who is much of anything, one who has only a borrowed authority, it is really you. You're the real authority, Lord. Your word is the real authority. And your spirit is the real power. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would uh, work beyond me. And, Father, that you would take this text and imprint it in our hearts by the ministering power of the Holy Spirit, Father. May he have free reign and access to our hearts this morning. And Father, cause us to be uh, greater worshipers as a result of the hearing of your word, receiving of it, cherishing of it, Lord. And Father, may it not be just... May we understand that the reason that we cherish your word so that we would grow in our affections for you and worship you. You're worthy of that praise, Lord. We pray, Lord, as we study these deep things this morning, Father, that they would be made simple to our hearts and that we would be able to say with Paul, uh, forgetting what lies behind, one thing I do that I press on towards Christ Jesus, the upward call of Christ Jesus. Help us to be that focused, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, we've come to a simply astounding, amazing passage this morning. Uh, it is really the, the height of the highest mountain. We are going way to the top. And as you go to the top, just as most mountains, there's not much air up there. You're going to feel a little bit kind of you know, a bit suffocated. And I believe it's because of the enormity of the surrounding. You realize that the mountain, the very mountain that we're going up, that we're going to ascend and stay at for a while this morning is the mountain of God. It is where he is. It is the mountain of who he is. And I trust that you're going to be and feel blessed by the end of this. And as you come down, back, May it be with the sense and the clear understanding of who God is. We might radiate him, that we might, you know, express the nature of who God is to a world that is, as uh, Brother Jim shared with us earlier from Isaiah 9, in darkness. Let's give our attention to this text. Romans 11, starting in verse 30, let me read verses 30 through 36. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, 
So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This morning, we have the privilege of seeing three things intertwine and come together. And as I mentioned to you, we're going to go way up top to the height of the mountain. Uh, you know, all of us really are leveled there. All of us are going to feel a bit like we're going back to uh, preschool in comparison. We're going to feel quite a bit undone. Let it be that which leads you to his throne of grace. But there are three things that intertwine and come together here this morning. We have that privilege of seeing these. And they happen to be the three things that I believe keep our church being a church. They are the backbone of what we believe and form the structure of all that we do. The real motive, the goal or the aim of everything. Now, I want to lay those three things out before we enter into our study so that you can be clear as to this backbone and that you can feel, I think, a bit of... I mean, there's so much depth here in this passage. So at least you can feel a bit of kind of, I think, what was going on in Paul's heart and what he tried to surface out. And I ended last time with a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I want to revisit. It was about Israel and her, and, and, and her having a literal future. Listen to this. It was a sermon on Ezekiel 37. And remember, Spurgeon said, If there be meaning in words, this must be the meaning of this chapter. That is, a literal future for Israel. I wish never to learn the art of tearing God's meaning out of his own words. If there be anything clear and plain, the literal sense and meaning of this passage, a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, must be evident that both the two and ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land and that a king is to rule over them. Now, what's vital about that is what Spurgeon does and what I believe we try to spend every week here doing is elevating the scripture, holding tightly to it, studying it and interpreting it literally, seeing it for, asking ourselves, what is the author's intent here? Why did he write this? Who was he writing it to? What was his meaning? We have no aim at all to do anything but just to say, look, it says it, we, we must find a way to believe it. We must allow the, the truths of it to enter in our heart, but first we have to know it. And that's the idea of interpretation. And what is vital to me then is this issue of holding tight 
tightly to Scripture. So our study in chapter 11 is really a study in testing that. Are we going to hold tightly to what it says? And believe me, there are so many passages in Scripture that you run into that you go, I'm not sure I want to believe that. That's hard. That's difficult because that is a confrontational verse. Or that's a difficult one to swallow. So it really is a test of that. The second thing that we see here, there's a second thing, and that is not only what you could call the doctrine of Scripture, but the doctrine of salvation. And that has been the theme of Romans. All of Romans really is teaching us about salvation. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. That's our theme verse, and you could add verse 17 to that. And the rest of Romans up to this part is really defining what the gospel is, explaining salvation, what it is, how a person gets saved. So you have these two things, and you'll notice all throughout Romans, he's quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage and explaining. What's he doing? He's trying to direct us to hold tightly to the Word of God, to understand how valuable the Word of God is, to understand that it is to be understood literally. Secondly, he wants us to really hold on to the truth about salvation, what it is, explaining how a person gets saved. And then there's a third thing, the glory of God. And we started seeing that last time, didn't we? Now look at verse 36 to see this. And I believe you take these three and it, it gives you, it sharpens the focus. Look at the end of verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul doesn't wait for somebody else to amen him, right? He throws in his own amen, right? And you put all three things together and you know what you get? you get our church we are committed to the word of God understanding it not spiritualizing it not trying to explain it away from a standpoint of human logic nothing like that at all we want to just hold it up and we want to be humble enough to say look I need to study this thing I can't just rest on any kind of pedigree or rest on any kind of upbringing that you know, or, or answers that I might have been told are the answers. I have to actually look at that thing and study it and look under that rock and go, what does this say? It's important to read commentaries. It's important to read what other smart guys have said. But you know what? Ultimately, when we lay our heads down on our pillows, the real accountability is not going to be, well, that guy said this, right? What's the real accountability? You in your study of God's Word. Mine too, right? We hold tightly to the doctrine of salvation. We have got to get the gospel right. If we don't get the gospel right, we're never going to be able to proclaim a message that people can be saved by, and particularly in our own homes, right? And then, of course, the glory of God. The glory of God. And it's where we say to ourselves, look, it's not enough to have programs. It's not enough to have these structures. We have got to make our aim the glory of God. I'll never forget being a part of um, church-wise. Somebody had brought up some, some activity that they wanted to do. And 
And then somebody else said, well, how does that glorify God? And the person was perplexed at that, that thought. Why should we be worried about this? It's just fun. Well, the person said, because the aim of my life is the glory of God, and I would think it should be all of our aim. In other words, it is the, really the, the compass for our life, directs our life. It's the filter. We exist to know God, and we do that by studying his word. And the way we know God is to be saved. You have to be saved. You can't know him unless you're saved. And the reason we're saved is to glorify God. That's the ultimate goal of redemptive history. That's the whole point of it. In fact, you remember what we've learned. It's not just that salvation glorifies God, but listen, chapter 9, we learn that God is glorified even when he condemns a sinner to hell. So it's really important that we get this. You say, how can he? Why is that? Because it demonstrates his wrath. Because it demonstrates his holiness. It shows the world that God is just to punish sin. And so we see that all of his actions and all of the things that he does, it's all about his glory. It's all his glory. Now, chapter 11, verses 25 to 36 is the third point for Paul in explaining why Israel's been set aside in God's plan. Now, why are we keep talking about Israel being set aside in, in this whole plan here? Because Paul was the one who, who's, who got us started here. In chapter 11, verse 1, when he said, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And then he's, this whole chapter then is just an unpacking of that statement. He has to explain, has he rejected his people? And I tell you something, if you say yes, then you have to open up Romans 11 and explain the may it never be, and what that, what that, why then he says may it never be. I think you're going to have a tough time doing that. So obviously the answer is no, he hasn't rejected. So now we have to go the next step further and say, well, wait a minute. So what does it mean? Because boy, sure looks like they're rejected. It sure looks like they've been set aside. And so we learn three things about their being set aside, right? We learn, first of all, that it is in part, it's fractional. Just part of them has been set aside because Jews are being saved to this very day, aren't they? And then we learn a second thing. We learn that it's temporary. We learn that it's temporary. It's something that is not going to uh, last forever. Why? Because God's going to remember his covenant, and that's why, why we get to our, this third one. It's focus, and it's focus on an, an all ultimate purpose, an overall purpose. It's focused on a huge purpose, a main purpose. And which purpose is that? The glory of God. The glory of God. And I think this is so critical, so crucial. And what he's doing is he's, he's actually uh, linking together personal salvation and the salvation of Israel as a whole. Now, by that, understand, it's not so much that nations can be saved. That's why it's amazing when... You hear people say, well, America started out as a Christian nation. There's no such thing as Christian nations. You understand that? There's no constitution that's put together. You go, ah, well, that, well, that makes it Christian. 
Salvation, if that's what we learned in chapter 9, salvation is all about God saving individuals. However, there is one nation that the Bible speaks of as God making a covenant with. And I know, I mean, we can sit here and go, well, I just don't understand. It doesn't make any kind of sense to me. Yeah, but the, the, the first question you have to ask is not, does it make sense to you? The first question you have to ask is, but is that what the Bible says? And if the answer to that is yes, then we can spend loads of time trying to figure, understand that, right? But we start with, is that what the Bible says, though? And so, as we get to the end of this section, what we realize is that it's not just about Israel, but it's really the conclusion to the whole section from chapter 1, verse 16, all the way to the end of 11 about salvation. The focus always for, all, for everything is, is the glory of God, but in particular here, the focus for salvation, the doctrine of salvation, is the glory of God. That person gets saved, that person doesn't get saved. What is your answer to that? The glory of God. How, can that, how could that person come to Christ? Did you see all that they've done in their, in their life? Yes, but God is getting glory in that. And the whole point of salvation is, is, is this very thing. It is God rescuing His name. That's the whole point of, of, of salvation. The whole point of salvation is God rescuing His name. It's not, we're byproducts. You understand that? We're not this. We like to think of ourselves as being the center of a lot, right? We just kind of, you know, why, why, you know, and that's how come I think we can come up with tracks. You know, so God has a wonderful plan for you. It's all about you. It's just, wow, it's, you know, he's, you're at the center there, and there's a little spotlight. And not at all. Can you imagine going to somebody and saying, I, I want to share the gospel with you. Listen, God made a plan to rescue his name. What does that have to do with me? Oh, it has a lot to do with you. It does, but it has more to do with him. See? Aren't you interested in learning about God and, and what God has done for God? So, well, I don't know. Maybe not really. So, well, you know why? Could it be because you love you too much? Could it be that you're concerned with you and you really are not concerned with the glory of God? So the glory of God is the conclusion of the doctrine of salvation. It's the whole point of salvation is God rescuing his name. Now why does he have to do that? Well, let's follow this logic along here. Because it was his idea to create everything, right? You start with God. It's his idea to create everything. Revelation 4.11 says he created all things so that he would receive glory. But by the time you get to Genesis 3, what's happened? Man's fallen, right? And he's lost. And so God's rescue of man is not so much about helping man though he does, what about recovering his great glory? It's the reason for everything. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 10.31 Whatever you do, what do you do? You do it all to the, to the glory of God. Psalm 50 verse 23 in the New King James says it this way, Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And so praise glorifies God. And so God's design, therefore, in creating us is for us to give him glory, to get, a cre to get creatures to glorify him. 
to get the very creatures that are related to Adam, in, related to Adam in such a way that we're related to his sin, right? To his sin nature. To get those type of people. To get God belittling, God denying, man loving, self loving, sin pursuing people, guilty, rebellious people to praise him. How are you going to do that? Maybe we should get a work on our getting a cool band. Maybe that would do it. We could get, we could really get people to praise God that way. Maybe if we built some ornate building, we could get people to, to praise God, right? Maybe if we just kind of started doing things that looked a little bit like the world, but not totally like the world, but just a little bit, then we would get people to praise God. Yeah, but is, is any of that, any of those things going to change the heart, turn the heart, turn the heart that's, that's now bent towards self-loving and bent towards self-preserving and bent towards meism? Any of those things are going to get people away from that and towards God? You know they won't. <coughs> they're powerless. They're helpless to change the heart. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Getting people to give them glory. That's our calling as Christians. <coughs> Excuse me. It's even our evangelism. Our message to preach. Psalm 145 verse 11 they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom that's our calling beloved that's our message our message is the glory of God all over the Old Testament the Lord makes it clear that salvation is tied to his glory it's all about getting people to glorify him Psalm 29 1 ascribe to the Lord O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And so there he's saying, look, that's, that's the height of it all, giving God glory. The great Old Testament passage on Israel's future salvation, listen to this, Ezekiel 36, 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned. And then verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Thank you. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and then God's going to prove himself holy among them. Now, how... He's about to act, he says. He's going to prove himself holy, he says. He's doing it for his sake, for his name. What is it that he's going to do? Verse 27 tells us. He's going to put his spirit within them and cause them to obey him. What's that? Salvation. Why is he going to save them? For his holy name. Whoa. Really? He did this for you? Yeah. Listen. Because when I do that for me, it's the best blessing for you. See? 
That's so important, so critical that God be God. And that He do that. Why bring God glory? Because He's a redeeming God, right? Because He's worthy of it. First Timothy 1.17 Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul said that, interestingly enough, right after giving his testimony. He gives his testimony, and then he says, you know what you do when you have a testimony? You, you then begin to glorify God and say, God is worthy of all glory. That's what you do in light of the salvation that Romans 1 through 11 describes. It's the only fitting way to end, right? I mean, think about how, think about what an alternate ending uh, Romans 11 could have been. He could have then, you know, spent just verses on, man, it, it's so great to just have this joy and to really have peace and now I can have great relationships with people and friends and stuff and this is just great, right? But he doesn't do that. His focus is now purely God and who he is and elevating him for what he has done. How about Romans 1? Paul's been telling us from the beginning that the whole point of salvation is the glory of God. In verse 1 he speaks of the gospel of God. Verse 4, it's a declaration about the power of a resurrected Jesus and it ends with us being called saints and beloved of God in verse 7. But listen to verse 5. Paul's ministry was this, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, that's salvation, but listen, for his name's sake. Why preach the gospel and get people saved? So that God will get glory. To bring glory to his name. How about Philippians 1.9? We just studied this, didn't we, as a flock? Paul prays for their love to grow. In verse 10, he says he, he prays for them to be able to approve things that are excellent. And what he means by that is to discern righteous things uh, from, the, from the sinful things. And that God would, would keep us sincere and blameless until Jesus comes back and living that way. And you know, that's really encouraging, isn't it? Because we struggle with sin and then... Is, is God faithful? Well, sure he is. He's, is he going to bring us back to that blameless place practically? Sure. But watch this. Verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Now, when did that happen? That happened at salvation, didn't it? Having been filled with that. And that righteousness has a resonating effect, beloved. It produces fruit, it says. But that salvation does one more critical thing. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end with, oh, look at the blessed fruit. It doesn't end there. End of verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. See? So many more passages that we, and I had to cut out a lot there from my studies. But let me give you another one, though. This is one more here. Ephesians 3, verse 9. It's a good one. Well, verse 8. God gave me grace, Paul says, and he gave me grace to preach the gospel, basically. And then you get to verse 9. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. In other words, he says, uh, God gave me the meaning of the mystery. What is that mystery? That all people can be saved through Jesus Christ. Listen, whether you're Jew or Greek. He's already made that point in chapter 2. It doesn't matter. You can be saved. Wow, why is that so important? 
Verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. That's another way of saying that the church might show how amazingly wise God is and how he saves. All about God, right? It's not about God looking at it and going, oh, there's a good one. I got to save that one right there. And so God saves a person and then they show God for being the great God that he is because he's able to take a wretch like you and me and, you know, make a shine. Philippians, thinking of Philippians 2 again, where we shine as lights in a crooked world. But that's not all. <laughs> he says, bring the, uh, the, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Are you ready for this? We are saved so that all of heaven's praise might increase. Might get greater. You realize that? That's a... Whoa. It's a fantastic thought. You say, are we doing that? No, God did that. We just responded to his work in our hearts, didn't we? See? God is doing that. Isn't that an amazing plan? God, here, here is God, and he says, you know, how do I increase the, gl the glory of my name? How do I really just radiate this glory because the world will be better for it? How, how do I do that? Save a people that are darkened by their sin and let's let every one of their salvations be the cause of more praise and worship in heaven. Whew, wouldn't that make you want to just go out and preach the gospel, right? You, I want heaven to sing, you know? It's good stuff. And so the main point, though, is for the glory, that salvation is for the glory of God. Got to get that thought in your mind as we come to this end here. Salvation is for the glory of God. And what we learn then is that our happiness is not the goal. Our happiness was not the aim. Our happiness was not the focus of salvation. God didn't look down and say, poor little unhappy people, here, try this. It really was all about God saying, you know what? You need to taste and see how good it is for me to receive glory. Doxology is the end purpose and goal of salvation. You don't know what the word doxology is. Doxa is the word for glory. Ology is the word for kind of a message or, or, or you could even say proclamation or, a, or even the word I've been using, a radiating. It's a, it's a radiating of the glory of God, a doxology, a praising of Him. The greatest message is not God loves you, but listen, but this, you can worship Him now freely. Yeah, God loves you is, a, is an amazing message. But if God loves me, but I'm going to be sent to hell, Right? There's a conflict there. 
But if God loves me, and now I'm able to worship him freely, that becomes the, the higher important message, doesn't it? Whoa. I mean, wasn't that Jesus' point to the woman at the well in John 4? Listen, God desires to make worshipers, he says to her. You worship that which you don't know. Look, I mean, you know where that's going to take you if you keep worshiping that which you don't know? It's not going to take you to heaven. It's not going to take you to be with the Lord. You need to come to a place of knowing Him to be able to worship Him freely. So you have... All right, let's put this all together here. So you have Israel in the Old Testament, God's people, a remnant of saved people. They reject the gospel. God saves Gentiles. God will eventually save Israel, okay? We're just kind of tying this all together. And all of that is for one purpose, to exalt His glory, to give Him praise. Now, what do we mean by give God glory? I'm giving simple definitions here this morning. We mean this. We mean taking the veil off of who he is. Letting others see him. All of him. That's giving God glory. Taking the veil off. You know how to do that? The only way you can do that is by having a clearer vision of who he is, his attributes, his attributes. Now, the more we talk about him and see him and who he is, is the more we, the more we glorify him. And so we see four characteristics of God, four marks of his character, his attributes that praise Him for sovereign grace, for divine salvation. And we're asking this question, how does Israel's salvation, or really any salvation for that matter, glorify God? Now these four are what launch the church into praise. How? First of all, it magnifies His sovereignty. God set aside Israel. God eventually will bring salvation to Israel. And it helps us understand that in Israel's salvation, in any salvation, the whole point of it is that it magnifies the sovereignty of God, His sovereignty. Now look at verse 25. I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, he says. Now you, you need to know something that is hard to see with, with uh, your eyes, and so I'm giving you that information. Well, what is it? Oh, and by the way... As I'm giving this to you, he says, don't be wise in your own eyes. And don't, don't look for some logic to explain why the church is in and Israel's out. I mean, and don't even look to some logic to understand what I'm about to say, which is, as soon as the Gentiles are all in, then all Israel's going to be saved. Don't try to, don't try to, now, okay, well, let me explain that to you here with your own explanation. Look to the Word of God. Look for your explanation to be what the Lord says. And by the way, all that's going to take place in the, in the future. It is all a part of God's sovereignty and salvation, isn't it? Look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you if you're looking there saying, wow, I just don't. That's just a remarkable statement to say that the fullness of Gentiles coming in and, and then all Israel is going to be saved. That's a remarkable statement. I, I, have a, I have a practical problem with that. Well, that's fine. I mean, 
The disciples had a practical problem with, with a lot of things that Jesus would say. And Jesus was always having to remind them, look, with God all things are possible. Now, don't think to yourself, this is impossible. Uh, th this can't happen. Well, of course it can happen. That's the point of this. God is sovereign. So what's happened? How do we understand Israel? A partial hardening has happened to Israel. Paul admits God's hardened, hardened them. I mean, he's a, he admits that. He says there's a partial hardening. This is God's doing. They, they didn't believe, and he set them aside. There's a lot of people that don't believe that God's not just setting aside, right? But he did with them. By the way, there's a lot of people that are not believing that Hebrews 6 tells us that he is setting aside and it does become it can become a permanent deal you say well why can't that be the deal here with Israel why can't we say that this is Hebrews 6 and that Israel's now that this is now a permanent deal you know why because the Bible says it's different the Bible says that they will be saved okay so he speaks of a particular group that will receive salvation that way Notice the word until. They will, they will be hardened as a nation until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's just another way of saying that God's uh, done saving all the Gentiles he had planned on saving. Okay? So there's a number. We don't know what that is. He said, well, then, well, then what will happen? Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Their hardness, their blindness, their rejection is not going to be able to stop God from accomplishing his sovereign plan to finally bless Israel. Absolute sovereignty. That's what Israel's future salvation's going to demonstrate. That's what her future salvation is going to demonstrate. The sovereignty of God. And I got to tell you, it's one of my favorite thoughts to meditate on, is God's sovereignty. It takes care of all anxiety. It takes care of all the stress of future planning. You know, it even takes care of laziness. Because if you truly believe that God is sovereign, wouldn't you want to get in on that? Wouldn't you want to just be right there with him? Sure. How many times does the Old Testament talk about God's commitment to his counsel, to his plan? And that leads to the next point. Secondly, it maintains his credibility. So this salvation and how God is doing this maintains his, his credibility. And again, you see all these are part of the glory of God. I mean, when we, when we elevate the sovereignty of... Uh, uh, the, the, when we say God is sovereign, is that not laying down a platform, a foundation for his, us glorifying Him, His glory? And we're going to focus on His integrity, and that's what He does in verses 26 through 29. Will you notice what the issue is? The Deliverer is going to come, and notice what the issue is when He comes. It's their ungodliness. See that there? And then verse 27, it's their what? Their sins. The deliverer is going to come, and why he's going to come is to remove ungodliness and remove sins. Read Ezekiel 36, read Jeremiah 31. You'll see all about that being the focus. Now how does this point show that God maintains his credibility by doing this, his integrity? Because verse 26b, what does it say? It is written. I mean, the Bible said stuff in the Old Testament about God doing this very thing. And that word in verse 27 is important. And look at another word that's important. The word covenant. 
It means God's past covenant with Israel wasn't just smoke, wasn't just words, wasn't just a condition. Look, he didn't believe, so therefore, I'm, I take the covenant back. I'm giving it to that guy, right? It means he will be faithful to keep it. He is a covenant-keeping God. So how, how, how are we to understand that Israel now and Israel's future? Verse 28. This is good. This is very helpful. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. Let's not forget that. Well, we, should, we should be arrogant and treat them bad. Well, no, he's already told us not to do that, right? We should think that we're superior, right? He's told us not to do that. But do understand, they are, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. And Paul says, look, they've rejected the gospel, and that makes them enemies of God. But don't get all uppity, right? And will you notice, they're enemies, I like this last, this, that this little part, for your sake. I mean, their loss was your what? Gain, wasn't it? And again, it's so tempting to say, to kind of fill, you know, the chest out, and kind of, ah, that's, that's good, you know. No, there's a humility behind it, isn't there? Oh, wow. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for having this plan, this sovereign plan. I don't fully get it, but I'm thankful. I get to be included in this. And that's not all, though. But from the standpoint of choice, they are what? Beloved for the sake of the fathers. So Paul says, but they have... They have a blessed, beloved future. Why? Because God's going to remember his covenant to the fathers. Who are those guys? Abraham, Isaac, those guys, right? And then the stake is driven into the ground, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are, what's it say? Irrevocable. Unable to be, no regrets, no take backs with God. Just a remnant right now, but one day he will save the whole nation. Not every single Jew. That's not his point. And not remedial, not Jews from the past. That's not his point either. His point is, there's going to come a time, there's going to be a group, he's going to save them. And that group is going to represent a whole nation that he's going to work with. Ones who will look upon Jesus whom they pierce, as Zechariah 12 says, and cry out to him as Savior. And this just fits with who God is. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, yet he remains what? Faithful. Psalm 36.5, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. I love this one. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. See, I mean, it doesn't look like things are going to work. Certainly, it doesn't look like, you know, God would save Israel, but he's faithful, and he will bring it to pass. And those two things, then, are the basis for God keeping his promise. His sovereign power and his credible character. And, you know, if you have one, but you don't have the other, it, it doesn't work, right? You can't be, uh, you know, have this incredible character, but kind of have your hands tied behind your back and not any power to do anything, right? Oh, I wish I could save these people, right? See, that would be character without, without power. And you can't have the other one, too, where you have all this power, but just no character, and you're just kind of willy-nilly, and, you know, they both go together. All right, that leads us to the third one. 
this issue of salvation, this issue of Israel being set aside, now focus on the salvation and the future of Israel and the salvation really of any Christian or of any person, any sinner, to become a Christian does this. It manifests his kindness. The glory of God is, is shown, the praise of God is shown in manifesting his kindness. Now this point is actually is the combination of the last two. You can call this attribute kindness or generosity or even liberality. That is that God is liberal to just save whom he wants to save and he does it. He's generous in his salvation, isn't he? He's kind in his salvation. God lavishes his grace. Now take a look here, these verses here. The key word is mercy. And we're going to get to that. But for right now, mercy simply is this. God keeping back punishment that we deserve and giving us forgiveness that we need. That's the essence of God's kindness. So that's keeping that one, Romans 1.18 wrath back, right? And, uh, and giving us Romans 4.5 forgiveness of sins. Where justified, imputed righteousness. But the point is, is that this is, this is another reason for us to praise God. Praise Him for His kindness. How can God show us how kind He is? Three ways there in your notes. First of all, by producing a people that need it. Oh, let me tell you, this is going to be difficult, but it's, it's, it's going to be good stuff, though. Now, verse 29 ends with calling. Notice that. What kind of people does God call? Are you ready for this? What's it say in verse 30? Disobedient. Disobedient people. See, this is the reason why I say it. I'm not... Now, understand I, I, why this I, I uphold the doctrine of election, but, boy, everybody qualifies to be saved, don't they? From the standpoint that... Whom does God save? Romans 4, 5, the ungodly. That's whom he justifies. You understand, the problem is not so much... It's not so much people being sinners. They are that. All of them are. It's people admitting that they are what? Sinners. It's people admitting that they, are, they really are the wretched. They really are the disobedient ones. I'll start at verse 30. For just as you were once, as you once were disobedient to God. Who's that? The Gentiles. But notice, that's how Paul describes what it's like to be an unbeliever. Disobedient. You're the disobedient one. You constantly rebelled against God's law. God said, go right, and where did you go? Left, right? I mean, I mean, it's always that way. If God says this, I'm doing the opposite, see? And doesn't your heart kind of rub against that? You read the Bible, and, you, and the Bible says, go this way, and there's a bit of your heart that says, but I want to do the opposite. Well, that's your sinful heart, right? Your ways always, your way was always best to you. You live by your whims, by your desires. You, you are the boss of your life, right? And God called that disobedience. Interesting that some versions say, uh, uh, believe instead. Instead, they say, well, you once didn't believe. This is what some versions say. I think the, the King James Version is that way. There's always a close connection, by the way, to, to not believing and, and uh, not believing the gospel and being disobedient to God. Those two are always tied together. In fact, if you want to do a study on that, just that one thought, read Hebrews 3 and 4. It is perfect. It really it tells you. In fact, it uses that. It says they didn't believe because they were disobedient. 
connects those two things together. So here are these Gentiles, and they didn't believe and disobeyed God. And how did God save them? He showed them what? Mercy. But notice, because of their disobedience. Who's the there? Now this there is Israel. And again, their loss was a Gentile's gain. So he says, you got the mercy because they disobeyed. So you started off in disobedience. And then you got brought in because they disobeyed. And you can say it a way that we're saved because they didn't believe. And what a strange thing to be thankful for, but it's true. And then look at verse 31. Well, verse 30 was the Gentiles, but 31 isn't. He says, so these also now, who are, who's that? The Jews, Israel, have been a disobedient. And again, what keeps Israel from being saved? What is it? What's he say here? Disobedience. And this is particularly not obeying the gospel is what he means. What's the gospel command? Repentance and faith in Christ alone. Repentance from your sin, faith in Christ alone. They didn't obey that. I'm going to come back to the mercy of verses 30 and 31, but let me show you another thing about God's kindness that simply is unbelievable. Secondly, position a people to receive it. So this is what God does. He produces the people that need it. He positions the people to receive it. Look at this. Verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Now the word shut up is a very fascinating word. It means literally to imprison. It says that God has imprisoned. Disobedient Gentiles are shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience. And repentant Gentiles will some be the, someday be the cause of a disobedient Israel to be shown mercy. And that's verse 31. So what verse 32 is, is a conclusion point. And it's sort of a therefore, a, a why that's so important statement. And it says that God imprisoned them so that he could show his mercy. Now hold on here. Follow along. Do you want to know what that means? Listen. In order for God to reveal how kind he is, in order for God to get a people to taste his mercy, he has to have a people at a certain position. What position would that be? This is very, very important. And this is very hard to swallow. But it's true. Mercy is for people that deserve what? The opposite of that mercy, right? For people that should be this way. People that... that People that should receive judgment. And all of a sudden, you give them mercy. So in other words, in, or, in order to have a people that you can show mercy to, you have to have a people that are what? Undeserving of that mercy. Let me uh, say it maybe a different way. In order for God to reveal how kind he is, he would have to have a people deep in sin, in prison in their sin, deep in a bondage to that sin. You say, well, <laughs> you're not saying that God made them sin. No. The Bible's clear. That God did not make them sin. But did they? Yes. Why? 
so that God can show his mercy. It's an attribute of God. How is God going to demonstrate his mercy? To who? If everybody's perfect. Your brain's hurting right now, I know. It's all right. God is sovereign. He saves sinners so that he can show off his mercy. So, and look who, I mean, as you're wrestling with how can God reveal himself as a merciful God, think of this. He has to allow sin to exist so it can put a people under bondage so he can then go and rescue them. Now what will these people do who are rescued by God? They're going to praise him, aren't they? This is how God gets glory from sinners, right? This is how God gets glory from people. Now, look at what else what it says. It says, show mercy to all. To all? Is this universalism? No, the all there doesn't mean every, every person who lives. It means the whole group of Gentiles and Jews that are elect. God's going to show mercy to them. This is a great statement. Oh, how I'm thankful for this. Paul's already gone over that, by the way, in, in Romans 9. So we're not going to go over that ground. But basically, this is the same point in Romans 3 where Paul basically was saying there, before God can have a people to save, he has to have a people who are condemned. Remember Romans 3.9, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then Paul describes what that was like. None righteous, none who understands, none seeks for God, all have turned aside, all are useless, none are good, none do good. Sin is pictured as coming through a throat that's like a grave, through their, through their deceit spewing tongue, out of their cursed bitter mouth. All their paths are destruction and misery. There's no peace, no fear of God before their eyes. That's a pretty dark uh, situation, isn't it? Very hopeless. Why is that important? Verse 19, so that every mouth may become accountable to God. And what he means is every mouth stopped, every mouth shut. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so God had to stop all mouths so that they could be guilty. That's why he goes on to say, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. He's making the point, so therefore... Now you have a group that can receive the salvation that God offers. The mercy that he has. And you can see how valuable that mercy is when you feel the wretchedness of your own sin. And so as one author put it, he shut them up in the prison of sin, the prison of guilt, the prison of judgment. Why? So God could come and demonstrate his mercy. And that's the next point. Third here, a little sub-point. He did all this. He, God demonstrates his kindness by providing a release for all who will receive it. Notice how many times in these three verses Paul mentions mercy. It's there in your notes. Salvation is all of mercy. Now I say release here, by the way, because only those who see and believe they are bound in sin and are guilty and are due by that guilt to a lost eternity in hell will desire this mercy. We're nothing without his mercy. And so we need to understand mercy. We of all people should realize that salvation is all of God's mercy. I mean, you know, if, if, if Israel doesn't reject that, that gospel, does it come to us? We don't know, but I mean, he sure makes it seem like we get it because they rejected it. 
we can be thankful for that, right? Mercies comes that way. Paul described uh, salvation that way with his own testimony in 1 Timothy 1. Do you remember this uh, testimony from Paul of himself? He said, uh, see if you identify with this, I thank Christ Jesus my Lord. He put me into his service. He was faithful. Verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. You know what a blasphemer is? Literally, the word blasphemy means to speak against God. I, I used to speak against God. I was against him. And you don't have to use his name, by the way, to speak against him. Okay? I, I was a persecutor. He killed people. He did. Huh, not just people, Christians. And then he says, I was a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant in faith, he says. And he says, I was the chief of sinners in verse 15. See, see where mercy goes to? You have to be like that, don't you? Verse 16, yet for this reason, I found mercy. So he explains, this, that's, he explains salvation that way. Salvation is a finding of mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. And that's just another word that goes right with kindness, doesn't it? So that God would just demonstrate through the Lord Jesus Christ just how kind and patient he is to save. Now think about this. To be shown mercy is to admit a few things here. First of all, it's to, it's to admit you're a sinner. It's to admit that you're down low, you're wretched. If we say that he, that, that what, what Paul says here, that he shows, has shown his mercy... We're saying that we're in need of that because we're wretched. Secondly, it's to admit that you are, you are to be pitied for your position. I mean, who's going who's gonna to do that to someone like you? If you admit that you're wretched, then you're also admitting that I don't get out of this place unless somebody shows, unless somebody bends backwards, unless somebody stoops down, unless somebody actually says, all right, Yes, you're bad, but I'm going to show some pity. I'm going to take some pity on you. This was the whole point of the Good Samaritan that he, Jesus was trying to get across to, to those guys. Look, this guy stooped down. God has infinitely done more. Thirdly, it's to admit that you don't deserve any favor from God because he's perfect. I mean, think about that. You don't deserve that mercy. He's the perfect one. Why should you... Why should God be the one stooping down, getting his hands dirty? He didn't do anything. We're the ones that are sinners. Fourth, it's to admit that mercy must be coming from a source capable of truly relieving you of your misery. Right? Fifth, it's to admit that there is a connection to the mercy and the disobedience. In other words, the reason that you need mercy is because you're marked by a disobedient life. Admit it. Will you admit that? Or is pride keeping you from admitting that? Sixth, it is to admit that mercy must be an exceedingly great attribute if it is the one attribute that describes forgiveness of sins, grace, kindness, divine acceptance, deliverance, and atonement from sins. You know, there's another great picture of mercy, of the mercy of God in that story in Luke 15 of the wasteful son. You remember that story? He just wastes his life. 
I mean, he loved money. He wanted to play all the time. And he takes his dad's uh, harder money that he knew was promised to him someday. And do you remember what he did? He wasted it all, didn't he? You know, he was the son that a dad today just wouldn't talk about. Can't talk about that son. He just wastes his life. But when the son comes back and throws himself at the father, how does he respond? What's he shown? Mercy. And he just lavishes. You read about it there in Luke 15. Just lavishes that mercy towards that son. I'm not worthy, Father. Make me like one of the hired hands. Make me low. Make me the, make me the lowest of the people that you, you have here. That's me. And there was no pretension in him saying that. He said it because he meant it. And the father said, no, no, no. I offer to you instead mercy. Why? Because you were lost and you recognize that lost condition. You saw yourself as wretched. You're telling me you're wretched. I have longed for you and I love you. Here is the mercy. See? And the point is that there's great mercy for those who see themselves as spiritually destitute and broken in a real waste like that guy. No wonder David cried out in Psalm 59, 16, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. Isn't that good? Let's not forget all, not all receive this mercy. Romans 9, mercy to whom he desires and others get what? Wrath. Wrath. Why? Because God has to do that too to demonstrate his righteousness and get glory for that too. So that's the reason to praise God, don't you think? Have you tasted his mercy? Okay. With all that, we need to get the highest point on this mountain of praise. And we kind of, this is going to kind of just fall out uh, as a, uh, <laughs> it's almost so high that there's not a lot to be said about these things because um, they're the depths of God. So this fourth one, the fourth thing that just kind of is a foundation of God's praise here and salvation is that it marks his immensity. It marks his immensity. Immensity is just a, another word that just means depth or vastness or greatness or largeness. Immense, right? Salvation, whether it be Gentile or Jew, individual or Israel, it just marks out how immense God is. Now here's Paul and he's just said all he said about uh, salvation in 11 chapters and all he said about Israel's future salvation. Now he just wants to praise God. He says, I've said all that. Boy, all, I'm le all that's left is just praising him. There's not a whole lot more to say. To bless God, to sing about him. Now four closing views to this depth, this immensity of God's sin and salvation. First of all, we see it in the profundity of his thinking. You know, I'm going to use big words here, but that's just because <laughs> we're talking about deep things here about God. Profundity, the profound. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Great verse, great thought. This is Psalm 92.5. Your thoughts are very deep. Or how about 1 Corinthians 2.10? Remember that there? Where it says, this, only the Spirit of God knows the mind of, the, of, of God. Can search out the deep things of God, it says there. 
Notice all that's here in verse 33, all about God's mind, his thoughts. You know, you can't get to the bottom of the barrel with our Lord. You can't. I mean, look at the first two riches. Wisdom and knowledge. What God knows and how he uses that knowledge. That's what wisdom is. God knows everything. And, you know, the depth, uh, the depth doesn't have to do so much with what God hasn't revealed to us. Listen. But about what he has shown us already in Scripture. And he's saying, even that which he has shown, you can't, it's so profound. I'm thinking of Psalm 139, verse 6, even the whole psalm. But this was great encouragement to David. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Or how about verse 17? How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. They just go on and on and on with depth in all sorts of different directions. Then notice the unsearchable judgments that that has to do with God's decisions, his verdicts. There's no cross-examination with God's sentences or conclusions, and his ways are unfathomable, and meaning you can't get to the bottom like the ocean. And ways has to do with how God carries out his decisions. Unfathomable, by the way, I can't even say that word. It, it literally means untraceable. You can't, trace, you can't trace him out. His ways are beyond us, not able to truly imitate him. And so watch this. God's wisdom and knowledge and salvation are shown in election. God's judgments are shown in his hardening of some and showing mercy to others. You see, you're just repeating Romans 9 through 11. Yeah. God's ways are shown in how he saves. And the words that you use to describe God's salvation then are deep, unsearchable, unsearchable and unfathomable. Just amazing. He's saying, look, you can't really get how God saves, can you? You can't really get the fact that that guy heard the gospel and he's received it and that guy didn't. You're trying to figure it out. You can't figure out the mind of God, right? Second, we see it also in the incomparability of his counsel. He says in verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has, who became his counselor? This is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 13. Great context. You can read about that. Just amazing. In fact, the word uh, is not mind in the Old Testament. It's there in the Hebrew. It's, it's the Spirit. Who has known the Spirit of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Again, all of this is about salvation. You can't counsel God on who should be saved. That's the point. You can't tell him, well, there's a good one. If only that guy would save him, you know. He will save whom he wants to save. Thirdly, we see it in the limitlessness of his freedom. Limitlessness of his freedom. And that is that God is free to save whom he wants to save and how he will do it. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. This is a quote from Job 41.11. It's another great context. Remember Job? And God's point there was that whatever is under heaven is mine. In other words, I'm free to save who, who I, whom I want to save. I'm free to act like I want to act. I'm not bound by anything. You can't give me anything that's going to turn the table, that it's going to make me go, oh, well, all right, second thoughts. One author put it this way, who loaned God something and now God is in his debt? I mean, really? 
God does not rely on us at all. Not our money, not our wisdom, nothing. And in particular, you can't say about God, I've given you so much. Shouldn't you say, give me salvation? Right? Whew. And then fourth thing here we see, we see it, we see this immensity in the comprehensiveness of his involvement with everything. With everything. What's it say? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Notice how God is involved in salvation. First of all, God is the source. From him. From him. It, all things come from him. Salvation comes from him. Notice God is the means. Through him. Salvation is through him, right? All things are through him. Notice God is the goal to him. Now we come to the final end. That's, you understand why I said that? The whole point of God saving people is for him to receive glory. All things are to him. All things come back to him. And so the point of this principle is all things have to do with God and he gets glory for them, especially those things that relate to salvation. Repentance and faith and broken hearts that, are, that come to him. All of that is designed for one specific purpose and that is you, that God would now make a person fit to worship him with praise. So how can we respond to this kind of conclusion? Ruiz. First of all, in humility. In humility. If you haven't been made humble by those things, then there's no hope for you. I, I don't know what... There's nothing to, more to tell you. Humility. Did you not see God stretching higher and higher and higher in yourself, getting lower and lower and lower? Joy. That's the second response. Oh, if you are of the saved here, is your heart filled with joy? See that God is full control of salvation and how it all works and whom he saves and why he saves. And then lastly, and this is the most important of all of them, just simply worship, right? Worship. Why do we spend so much time talking about our salvation? We're not patting ourselves on the back, are we? No, it's so that we will get our eyes on Christ, the author of that salvation, and worship him. That's why Paul's first word of verse 33, oh, oh, the depth. It's almost like you want to just, he just wants to hang on that word and stay there for a long time because that's meditation. That's him saying, these are, constant thoughts that keep my joy bubbling worshiping him may we become these kind of people as we meditate deeper and deeper on passages like this right let's pray lord we love you and thank you father for giving us your word for giving us these truths lord and i pray that you would take this these thoughts lord and, and make a um, Make us your servants. Make us greater worshipers of you, Father. What profound thoughts, Lord. I mean, we really don't... Uh, I feel like I've just scratched the surface and 
and yet I've come to the end of me <laughs> being able to say any more, Lord, about this. Um, I thank you, Father, for salvation in Christ, and, and Lord, uh, you have opened up to us a bit of your depth, and yet you use words like unsearchable, unsearchable, and we, uh, which tells us that we, we, I mean, you call us to seek after you, and yet you tell us you're not able to be searched fully out. I suppose maybe that tells us, Lord, that if the searching is good, and you promise that it is, and full of joy, that we should be thrilled with the thought that we can search for you and know you and have it not end and have that joy be made full. And I pray, Lord, that that would be so. If there are others here, Lord, that are not saved, Father, I pray you'd save them for your glory. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name.